Welcome back to Free Will is a Scam, a philosophy podcast in which myself and my siblings talk about philosophy. This week, we read Kierkegaard's The Present Age, which is an excerpt from a book review of a novel by Christine Guillemborg or Guillemborg Ehrensverd, a Danish author. And we enjoyed talking about it, and we hope you enjoy the podcasts. We're going to get right into it. Here we go. Did uh, Betsy, have you ever looked into the novel? No, no. It would be fun to. I I started to yesterday and today I, I started digging and in the in the PDF that I found for us, there's um, there's the preface and conclusion from it, which I read. It's only like five pages total, but um, I don't think there's an English translation of any of her works. And she's considered the first like major Danish novelist, like the modern Danish novelist, like goes back to kind of her, Christine Guillemborg Ehrensvard uh, from the, turn of the 19th century to the mid mid 19th century and Kierkegaard was a huge fan although he didn't know it because she wrote anonymously well from one anonymous writer to another maybe he maybe he did know right. i mean there were a lot of a lot of people writing anonymously and sort of knowing who who each other were in denmark at the time it, it's not, I, the yeah. stuff I read, it wasn't that clear. It was okay. like, he definitely didn't know to a certain point, And then maybe he knew around the time when he wrote this, but he, but it's not really all that clear. Um, the authors that talked about it that I read in here and in, in the historical introduction on this book, they suggest he didn't know her. Um, and then he went public just before writing this from what I read after yeah. the Corsair affair. Um, which is basically he invited a, a sat, satirical magazine to, to roast him, and then they did. Well, he, in, he invited a particular person. I mean, you know the nuance of the story, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm making it much simpler than there it is. Were, yeah. There were like claps and clapbacks and clapbackbacks. And... It's known that Denmark was such a hotbed of intellectual uh, rivalry and, you know, back in the 1840s. It's not not what I think of when I think of Denmark, ever. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they don't get to. It's just it's 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 neat. You know, like 1840s Denmark. You want to go and see some uh, you know intellectual knife fighting in the in the local papers. Yeah, they really went at each other. Um, Mikey, you asked her name. It was it's uh, her full name. Is Thomasine Christine Guillemborg or Guillemborg Ehrensverd nee Bunsen. She was married a couple of times. Well, the cool thing is that he had been following her her writings from her first major novel, from her first novel onward. Um, the first, this is all from historical introduction and some other sources I read about the history because I kind of got into it today. Her first one was called A Story of Everyday Life that became really, really popular. And, and again, Kierkegaard really liked it and liked all of her work. And uh, yeah, so and he wrote this two ages 
essentially because he wanted to quit writing everything else. So he, he decided that the only way he could keep writing was as a reviewer. So it's like his sort of cheat to get to, <laughs> to continue writing when he claimed that he wasn't going to continue writing in a previous work. Well, he claimed he claimed who was going to quit writing that he was right who but i mean how many pseudonyms did he have you know like is he ever really writing i think he sometimes is but often you know he's sort of working out the dialectic on paper through the use of personae that he pretty explicitly says aren't him yeah uh, from from my um reading i was curious if there's a point around here where he just decides that these that these personae aren't what he wants to do anymore. And he writes as himself. Here, I think he signs this as him. Well, you know, he also paid to publish his own works. And you know, he was pretty sure that he'd be dead by 33 because his <laughs> religious nut father told him he would be, that he wouldn't outlive Jesus. So well, how long did he actually live? Uh, into his forties, I guess. I mean, not very long, but the legend yeah. has it, right? The legend has it that he woke up on his 34 you know, one day into 33 and was like, oh, damn, what now? <laughs> so he, so he, right, he was left this fortune by his father that necessitated him not needing to work, but he ended up spending it on publishing things. Maybe he had a finite, you know, amount of publication money left to even draw from, because legend has it also that when he died, he left his remaining money to his former fiance and it only covered the cost of his burial. <laughs> do either of you want to do uh, like an intro to the, to the present day? Uh, I think Jesse does. Oh, oh mm -hmm. I'm so sleepy though. <laughs> Someone more awake needs to, needs to do it because then if you make a mistake or say something super interesting, it will awake me. <laughs> I'm gonna guess that it would be the former. Uh, well, I can I can give the historical intro fully. Do How's that. that, and then you jump in Ugh. whenever you're ready. Okay, so Kierkegaard is writing a review of a novel called Two Ages, and the novel uh, sets up the format of the of of his his general theme, which is. Uh, it pits the revolutionary generation in some ways against the present generation. And she is criticizing the present generation uh, as compared to the revolutionary generation. Although she does say in her conclusion or, or maybe in her um, preface to her book that she recognizes that generations are, are, are different in a number of ways and, and that she's not making the broadest value judgment, just saying that that this generation is different. And the way she categorizes the generations are the way that Kierkegaard picks up and runs with in, in this text. I was, I was somewhat struck by um, how clearly she lays out the arguments that he then expands. So that book is a novel. Um, I don't know much about it because I haven't, it's, I don't think it's in English nor any of her works are in English and in it, Kierkegaard clearly pulls out the main idea of, of, of the criticism of the present age as being passionless and being one of kind of rampant 
excessive reflection by members of society with the goal of a, a kind of stifling conformity. And he critiques just about everybody in society uh, who isn't um, fitting into his somewhat narrow idea of what people should be, uh, how people should be through that lens. And I don't think that's a great introduction, but you know, I think that's, that's my overview. It's the introduction we have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, something that I find interesting is that he's obviously reacting to a couple of things. So you have the sort of excitement of enlightenment thinking, where it's all about rational conversation and everyone gets an opportunity to use their universal skill of reasoning to come to conclusions. And we also now have science, which is coming into some kind of publicly recognized ascendancy as an authority on many things. Many things become explicable that in the past lived in the realm of mystery. Um, Kierkegaard has problems with this that that we can get into and he sees dangers there. But then he also is reacting to the influence of German romanticism as it comes into Denmark and this prioritizing of emotion over all else and, and a sort of particular type of subjective emotion that isn't rooted in what he sees as the root of emotion because it's not tethered to to anything that he thinks of as valuable and i th i think he traces this to the root of passion which is the latin to suffer so passion that's not related somehow to some kind of existential struggle is suspect and reason as a tool that everyone gets to use that they're then applying willy-nilly to everything from the most basic to the most complex, spiritual, physical, whatever. Um, he's calling out the dangers in these various things. So I find this piece kind of interesting because he bounces around between a lot of different thoughts that are obviously informed by actual, you know, like not just the, the culture as he sees it or, you know, the public and the process he describes it, though that's really important, but he also, without naming names, singles out particular thinkers of the preceding generation who are very influential, Hegel, obviously, and um, Schlegel and Fichte and others who were um, having a lot of influence, he thought undue influence, perhaps, on one side contrasted with the Danish state church, which he also saw as not, doing what it ought to do in this present age because it's lost any kind of rooting in individual understanding of god um, and when we get into if we get into what he means by leveling it's very important this severing of the explicable from the inexplicable you know the things that you know spinoza talks about with the one that plato talks about with the forms that you know, Plotinus talks about with the uns and all of this, this idea that there is some sort of eternal realm that we use as a referent when we understand the things of this world, that once that's severed, all of our reflection 
is just a bounce back of a reflection with no referent. Right. And that's, that's the thing that I wanted you to get to really specifically because I was very confused by the use of his term reflection. And unfortunately, I think I read it not knowing what that meant the whole time. But in a weird way, I was demonstrating it because I didn't have a reference for it. And that's what he means, that, these, that, that the people of his time... Well, could you explain it again? Because it was, it was just better the way you did it. Well, I think, yeah. So, I mean, once things leave the realm of having a direct referent, they become abstractions, right? And then we're batting around abstractions and we're pinging back and forth between abstractions that are becoming ever more diluted. There's no there there. And Kant touches on this in the critique of the power of judgment. Um, Kierkegaard doesn't go it down it in the same way or agree 100%, but it's this notion that, you know, and Hegel gets there too with, by, you know, Kierkegaard would seize Hegel's treatment of theology and rolling God into his systems theory. Um, this historical theory that, you know, I don't even want to get into it that much because I don't, I'm not such a competent Hegelian at all, but just this idea that it's not about our relationship with God anymore as individuals, or it's not about some sort of eternal something that because of reason and because of science and because we can apply these tools to literally everything, there is nothing that lies outside of our capacity to know. And this to Kierkegaard is, is incomprehensible, inconceivable and wrong. And so once that relationship to the thing is gone, I mean, we even see it in like some media theory of the 1960s and stuff, this idea of simulations and simulacrum or the idea of the hyperreal where we're no longer dealing with something that has a reference to real life. It's entered some sort of other sphere or it becomes almost like a, a paper doll. Yeah, it's like through the looking glass, in the looking glass. Right. And so Kierkegaard talks also about this reflection is like we can, you know, by severing things from the eternal realm, we've also severed them of any eternal meaning. And so without any sort of stakes there, and with this idea that we ought to be able to comprehend anything using our reasonable faculties, and that if reason is some kind of universal thing, that any and all of us ought to be able to comprehend these things. Everything is devalued. Meaning can't exist if there's no way to prove the meaning outside of something deducible, because he would say that there are things that lie beyond our capacity to comprehend. So then we can convince ourselves of anything because we can reason our way into and out of whatever we like. I mean, I guess there, you know, there are levels where that's not possible, right? But there are even things where we say, well, on a long enough timeline, we'll find out that we're wrong about that. Or, you know, that would be a form of unproductive reflection, right? Like, there are all of these ways, instead of having some kind of, even, even an eternal referent that isn't exact, right? Like, even something that's just saying this is beyond our comprehension um, is a way out of unproductive potentially um, contradictory reflections. But 
it's not one that Kierkegaard feels people are interested in, in engaging in, in his present age. And this also removes your sort of individual relationship with God or your individual relationship, even with the meaning and purpose of your life, because all meaning and purpose becomes, well, I could do that if I wanted to, I just don't want to, or, you know, it lacks any kind of compulsion beyond oneself. And then you can also sort of reduce potential motivations to explicable factors like Hegel's ideas of recognition that we do a lot of the things we do because we want recognition by the public or by the state, you know, and so then it's not, you know, he did this because he was compelled or because, you know, we believe in some sort of idea of heroic action. It's, oh, he just did it to get recognition or I could do that thing too if I wanted to. I just don't want to enough or blah, 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 blah but we sort of remove the possibility of some inexplicable motivation. Or even when he talks about principle, we do things because of principle. Um, and he says that people throw up the, the idea of doing things out of principle, not because the principle has some sort of compelling, higher, more eternal referent, but because the principle becomes the way that we no longer have to think about our own relationship to the thing. Because sometimes and often he suggests our principles don't even add up with what we like, right? Where it's like, well, I, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it because of principle. And he would suggest that that removes the person or, or, or that that gets the person out of needing to think about why they're actually doing it. You know, if you disagree with the principle, but you do it anyway, Kierkegaard would say there's something to think about there. You're not right. You know, you need to, you need to examine this in a way that's not what he calls reflection, but what he would call inwardness. So by throwing out principle as a like, oh, well, we, we do it because of principle. That's a way of not engaging in inwardness. Yeah, he's very, he's very critical of, of this idea of acting on principle and, and acting uh, out of um, regard for others. So my question on that is, if this is indeed a, a some ways a critique of of Hegel there, how, what is how does Hegel frame that um, that idea of, of of the? I don't think he's really criticizing Hegel. He's sort of using Hegel and going in a different direction. He's um, Betsy looked up some of the guys that he seems to be more overtly criticizing. Um, so you could probably answer that, but I know that um, he's he's obviously influenced by Hegel in the way that he uses the term recognition in here, and he doesn't and he does it in such a way that is not specifically anti-Hegelian, even though he is he's not in agreement with Hegel on some very important things, but not in this particular essay, I don't think. Yeah, there are areas where they're in agreement and then areas where they're in definite disagreement. But I think like most predominantly, Hegel is essentially a systems theorist and on a macro level. And so he conceives of things in ways that align with these great overarching systems that encapsulate everything. And Kierkegaard doesn't think that way, or he's also not interested 
in that, right? So instead of taking some sort of eagle eye view of time, like Haeckel does in this, you know, insanely long historical timeline that he applies to everything, Kierkegaard is very interested in the individual and in inwardness. So he's not looking out at the big picture thing. He's asking people to look very much in, but both he, both Kierkegaard and Hegel um, heavily criticized this thinker Fichte, who you would probably maybe remember as the I posits I, or the I that posits itself, I equals I. And so it's this idea that time and space and all of the ways that we conceptualize the world around us are actually just part of our reasoning apparatus and don't exist outside of our consciousness. So everything becomes subjective. I can't know that the world that you're perceiving is the world that I'm perceiving, right? So both Hegel and Kierkegaard feel that this is a way of putting all of ourselves in opposition to each other. It's not productive. How can we work together in any kind of collective way or understand each other if we're cut off from potentially any points of mutual understanding, right? Or, or experience. Um, anyway, and Fichte also ignores the infinite because it's all about our own perceptions, right? It's not about my relationship with the eternal. It's about however I see things and however I conceptualize things is just the way my apparatus is interpreting things. So if I believe in... So there's no transcendence, no right. imminence. There's, there's just this box. If I believe in these things, it's because my reasoning apparatus wants me to, needs me to. That's the form that it takes. And so this is a way of separating, or this is something that separates everyone. Now, Kierkegaard doesn't think that you shouldn't do things for other people. But he thinks that if you don't know yourself... And if you haven't taken the time to explore your inward nature, then the things you do and the reasons why you do them might not actually have anything to do with your feelings about other people, right? Because if you say, oh, I feed the poor out of principle, that's very different than having a personal understanding or personal relationship. But when he in other works talks about sort of the stages of life that that one can go through, right? Like you end up in the aesthetic stage where you live for pleasure. It's all about experience. It's all about, you know, delighting yourself. But ultimately he would say this becomes empty because you're moving from pleasure to pleasure and you sort of wear it out and then what's next? It's hard to form a stable self if you're constantly experimenting with who you are and you're never reaching a point where you have to live with yourself. You know, if you're constantly adopting new and different identities. But then, you know, he says that people pass into the ethical stage where we realize that we want to live in a society, we want a system of ethics, we need to behave toward each other in certain ways if we're all going to get along, right? This is sort of social contract stuff. Um, and that's all well and good. It allows us to exist with each other and allows us stability in our lives. We know how to act. We adopt a role. We know what it means to be a husband or a father or a businessman, right? Or any of these things. And so we adopt these systems. But then when he moves into the religious, you have to, to think beyond these things. And realize that some of some things in your life will be, if you're going to be 
have a true relationship with the eternal that they may be beyond the ethical. Hence the whole Abraham and Isaac story um, in fear and trembling. You know, Abraham is an ethical man. He would never kill his son. That would be anathema to the way he lives and the way he understands his own morality. But when God asks him to, he has to go against all of the structures he's adopted to be the sort of man he understands himself to be, to do this thing that lies beyond these systems that he's chosen to have to live his life. And of course, because in that construction, God doesn't actually want him to murder his son, right? It's like a, a test. The stakes have to be high in order for the test to be meaningful. Abraham has to move beyond the ethical if he's going to pass the test. And because he passes, God doesn't make him kill his son. But that's the kind of like crisis inwardness, I think, that lies beyond the, oh, I do it because of principle. Sorry, that was really long-winded. No, no, it wasn't. It was, well, it was long, but it wasn't winded. Um, I think one of the things I was thinking about in terms of the principal um, issue is, and the ethics issue, is he is, in a weird way, he is a systems guy, but he's sort of, let me, let me back up for a minute. I sort of see him and in Denmark and Marx and Emerson and, you know, first Hegel all starting to look at a period in time, you know, this early industrialization period in time and Kierkegaard and, and the rise of what is essentially a modern, you know, post-industrial revolution state of being, the sort of bourgeois middle-class you know, values instead of virtues. And that's what I saw when I saw the, the principal thing, where the principal thing is it's a placeholder for, it's a system for the middle class, for the bourgeois to sort of adopt in a, in a kind of a pre-Freudian system of values, um, you know, polite society, if you will. Um, and I see Marx kind of dealing with the systems too. Marx, by the way, is very, um, influenced by Hegel, but he went in a very different direction from Hegel. And he sees the big system happening and he sees this sort of rising bourgeois and he vilifies it and turns it into this, his own political thing over in that corner of the philosophical room. Um, but um, I kind of think of Hegel and Kierkegaard as talking about very different things because Hegel is looking at um, humanity and where it goes and where it might end up and is trying to understand humanity. And that's where he is interested in the big picture systems. Whereas Kierkegaard is very, very into the self and the individual and the idea of individuality in a time of sort of middle-class and bourgeois rising conformity. And so he takes aim at like a lot of different aspects of this, these systems of principles or these different ways of being for this new middle class, like superficiality and flirtation. He goes on to define all these things, you know, and even reason is defined in a way that is seem seemingly fashionable to a certain class of person, you know, 
And as a someone who's very interested in individuality, I've always liked Kierkegaard for this because he's when he's talking about the religious life, he's not talking about like going to church and you know doing stations of the cross or anything. Um, he's talking about something much more deeply personal. Well, and I think that that's why he makes, I mean, he makes all of these attacks on Christendom with a capital C as a thing where he's like, all you people who think you are Christians, all of you Christendom, what are you doing? What is this? And so his appeal really is away from the dogmatic and much toward this inward relationship to God. And his conception is obviously very Christian and rooted in Lutheranism, though not mainstream at all but like speaking to the to the whole like bourgeois thing and the superficiality thing i think that's why one of the reasons why the corsair affair was so upsetting for him it wasn't just that they went after him because that had been going on and he obviously engaged in it himself and needled other people it was that they went after the way he looked they went after the way he walked they went after his personal life, his relationship with his, you know, his fiance, where he had broken off the relationship. You know, he had had this opportunity to live a very traditional bourgeois life. He had the education, he was on a track, he was going to marry, he was going to do all of these things. And then throughout his various epiphanies, he realized that he couldn't live that kind of life because he had he needed to participate instead in this kind of inwardness. And so then to have this very personal, you know, these aspects of him that were so very personal and really attempts on his part, I think, quite earnestly to solve what he saw as these really big questions and to engage in something that he thought was valuable to be reduced to, you know, laughable idiosyncrasies, you know, is bad. And like, what's funnier sadly than like making fun of a really earnest person it's no fun to make fun of someone who has a great sense of humor about themselves and can laugh it off and i think that's why it also went on so long here's this man who's living you know the life of a public in intellectual you know who's so obviously lame you know he's not fashionable he's not doing these cool things and so i think that's one of the reasons why it was so painful so i was i was gonna ask about this idea of religiosity because he gets into it quite a bit here as and it seems to be the only thing he says we should be doing and and so you've answered some of that already um, but that was one of the the only elements in here that i didn't feel like i did really have a grasp on what he meant but it doesn't have a lot of form at the core it's um and he he starts to get into these um, paradoxes laid in the, in the text of, of where we should be going in order to find that religiosity, um, you know, heading towards silence. He's got a great line on page 97, only the person who can remain essentially silent can speak essentially, can act essentially. Silence is inwardness. And this is very sort of Zhuangzi and stuff um, from my perspective. Yeah, I agree. But something just to like boop over to Hegel for a second because an area where they definitely don't overlap and where Hegel is perhaps a bit Schwanzian is um, Hegel talked about the mediation of opposites. And so he felt like, you know, when he invoked Heraclitus, um, who 
you know, has the fragment of the, you can never stick your foot in the same river twice or whatever, you know. So Hegel understood things through this mediation of opposites and this sort of fluctuating something and that there was a relationship there that was meaningful. And Kierkegaard rejects this um, because he's like, no, 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 no. Like he, I think, sees that as related in part to this whole reflection that leads nowhere. You know, where it's like, if we're constantly engaged in this process of mediation between things, where are we ever getting and how are we going to know anything? And so this inwardness is really this deep, you know, silence and self-examination to see what is revealed there. And part of what, you know, he and Nietzsche see as instructive in this process, you know, is opting out of regular society not participating in things that they see as false um, or fashionable or things that don't have to do with you but have to do with some sort of role within society either in a traditional sense like you know having a defined occupation or just being a dandy right like you know they you have to opt out of all of that stuff and for Kierkegaard um you also have to be willing to suffer I mean Nietzsche too right like you have to suffer for this that the suffering is important right so he can even reframe the Corsair affair as saying that the, the people who are really hurt by this sort of thing are the people who are entertained by it right like there's a portion where he says that when people are vilified in the press there's an instinct to feel bad for the person whose life is ruined and he's like no 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 actually that person is learning some valuable lessons and becoming stronger as an individual it's the people who are paying attention and then rationalizing it one way or another, either thinking that the person deserved it or saying as they read it, like, oh, that poor person, I can't wait to see what happens next. Um, so there's this like opting out, but also the suffering part is important. Um, and the silence part is important because I think also in the silence, Kierkegaard would say there's room for the eternal. Like, you're not going to hear the voice of God if there's too much noise or if you're just, like, in a Danish church every day doing the rote thing that you do. That's your role of going to the Danish church and listening to the same sermon. And This is uh, in line with the one other thing I've read of his, which is Sickness Unto Death, in, in his... He's, he really has a, a focus on the problems of artifice in our construction of self and finding an authentic essential self is important and and i liked that stuff in here well one thing i think we could talk about too is the um parallels to our own time which is yeah i, I, I was gonna say that we could move to the, the the prophecy of this text right which means maybe that that some of the problems I have with our time may go back a lot further than I've previously considered. So uh, I, I was actually thinking there are two ways we could look at that, 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 that we're on a, a continuous downward trend is one, right? Mm -hmm. But the other could be that maybe our, uh, our criticisms here, or Kierkegaard's criticism, David Foster Wallace's criticism, uh, maybe this is just, sort of cyclical rehashing of the same problem. And we aren't actually in a downward trend. We're just what humans do. And it hasn't changed. Well, the reason why I 
think I think you're half right. I think you're right in terms of the last hundred, two hundred years. Um, but before that, I don't think so. I think this is a phenomena of the industrial and post-industrial existence. Um, I, I think there's a reason why in the 19th century you get all of these reactions um, to society. Uh, I was just looking up Fichte, um, which you, were, you brought up, Betsy. It turns out he was very popular amongst the Nazis. Yeah, he's a rabid nationalist and also a misogynist to the degree that he felt that women ought to have absolutely no civil or civic rights and in fact ought to be subject to father or husband until their death. Oh, yeah, sounds delightful. Um, now he's a he's a rabid nationalist in the face of Napoleonic invasion, so that should be mentioned. Yep. And his misogyny is somewhat in keeping with the time. And he was used and abused by Nazis, but so was Nietzsche. So was Nietzsche, to be fair. Um, but he's mostly due to his sister's bad translations, though. I mean, you know, come right, on. right, and and fabricated quotations. Fichte and some others are really there at the same time, um, and they're in their case, their view of the sort of chaos of modernity as it's as it's rising is is blood and soil philosophy, nationalism, and a sort of fetishization of the folk, the folk, you know, which you can see in Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson also has this image of, uh, and he's in a, he's in you know, an enlightenment thinker, you'd have to say. Uh, and he has, during his presidency and afterwards, um, this vision for the yeoman farmer, which only ever existed in his imagination and in northern New England, um, in the Connecticut Valley, and that that's going to be the Connecticut River Valley. That's going to be why he buys the Louisiana Purchase, so that the, the, the Volk could go, the new American folk can go out there with their three slaves and and um, with, with like like many things with Thomas Jefferson, it's so strange it's, that this comes from a, a Virginia tobacco. <laughs> yeah, he's a bizarre dude. Um, but the, all of these guys are are in the same like reactive period, and only you get really practical thinkers like Hamilton, who just like latches on to industrialization as a, as a as the great hope of the future. You know, the great democratizing force will be cities and industry and and business. And then you have these, you know, the romantics who are reacting to it in, in different ways in different places. Mikey, that was, that's a really good point. I, this is the first major era, you know, the, the present age is probably the second generation of widespread newspapers. And the first generation being the revolutionary generation. And I, I was thinking about that when I was teaching it this semester with my kids who uh, who I do the revolutions with and one thing that started to that I'm, I'm really curious about and I'd love to look into and I started to look at some articles on it but didn't get very far because I was busy was was um, this sort of what if question of, of without newspapers would the American Revolution have ex have happened did the revolutionary age happen uh, because the newspapers were you know had emerged as a part of culture certainly in benedict anderson's work on on nation and uh, his, his book imagine communities he talks a lot about how newspapers are a fundamental aspect of the emergence of a national identity uh, enough so to have an, an you know a nation as defined by europeans in the 17th and uh, the 18th and 19th centuries um but more to your point the newspaper is the first major piece of mass culture 
that exists, you know, after the town crier or something, right? Like um, in, in China, you have a whole uh, discourse around the problems of books in the 11th century, uh, 10th and 11th centuries as books emerged in China. But it's a discourse between the elites about how like the new elites don't remember anything and they're they're weak intellectually. And there is a petty literat, literal, uh, sorry, there is a petty um, a literate community. There's like petty foggers and booksellers, people who are like slightly literate um, at the time, but there's none of this mass culture stuff. Um, and, and you can say that for, for each of the book cultures that emerge in, in the world, right? So like China in the 10th and 11th centuries, Europe in the 15th century. Um, but the newspaper emergence in the late 18th centuries is just, is this really, really different moment for, for literacy and for mass media and mass culture. Because everybody can look at that newspaper in, in a wide range of places, as long as they're linguistically linked, and they can look at that newspaper and say, oh, this is us, this is our community, this is our nation. And newspapers still do that. They still bind us uh, in, in the ways that Anderson talks about. Yeah, I was trying to explain to students um, on several, in several different contexts the importance of newspapers, and particularly in the revolution, how people would gather in the pubs and read the newspaper together and like how galvanizing something like common sense is when it's a little newspaperish pamphlet handed out to people and then they all get together, get drinking and start reading it to each other. Um, and the other example that I love is another weird Jefferson example because he wrote the letter to the Danbury Baptist church about the wall of separation between church and state. And that was a public publicly um, published letter from the president of the United States to a particular congregation. And someone, I believe it was our dad, actually, <laughs> someone, someone was trying to say, well, it was just some letter he sent to some church. It was like, no, this was like a national speech. This is like live from the Oval Office. This is how you communicate to people. This is, this is, a, this is a public interpretation of founding documents for a nation, not just some letter. And that's, that's why newspapers are so interesting because new, unlike all other printed documents, like an essay or a, a journal or something, the daily newspaper, the weekly newspaper, whatever it is, has much more of a sense of, of community orientation. Like we, we are the people who make up the readership of this newspaper. And so it's much more binding than, than like, uh, than just say Thomas Paine's common sense being passed out individually. Like if it shows up in the New York Times or whatever, the Caledonia record or something, then, then you're going to have a, a much more binding thing. You're going to say, this is what we read because it's in our paper. And that we-ness uh, is, is again, yeah, something I talk about with students. And, and I think it's, I, I, I just, I brought it up because I think that's really, a big part of the critique here that that when 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 Danes in Kierkegaard's time are functioning in their sense of who they are through the newspaper, they are they're functioning in the artifice of of, of the things we already talked about of the um, propriety and principle and all these 
ways of acting that really aren't the authentic self. Um, right, but then let's also let's also touch on how he says the press is used or comes to be used. So he compares it to a dog, um, and so he says um, they they sick they sick the dog on someone, right? And then the dog takes someone down, and um, then he says, and so the public is unrepentant for it was after all, not the public that acted, but the dog. And then um, the public is unrepentant. It was not really belittling anyone. It just wanted a little entertainment or a little amusement rather. Then the public is unrepentant for it is not they who own the dog. They only subscribe. They neither set the dog on anyone nor whistle it off directly. If asked, they would answer, the dog is not mine. It has no master. And if the dog had to be killed, they would say it was really a good thing that bad tempered dog was put down everyone wanted it killed even the subscribers so it's interesting because the the press can speak for us we can rally behind the press but we can also have this distanced relationship with it there isn't a lot of accountability we have the accountability when we want it when we want to align our opinion positively but when it comes to responsibility when it acts like a dog there is this obvious distancing and he talks also about you know, this idea of the public as contrasted with the individual. What is the public? It's nothing. And so when the public has an opinion, what does that even mean? That's very different than the individual having an opinion. Oh yeah, that stuff just got me so, so deeply when I was reading that, you know, like, and not just, and not just the obvious easy, it's the Twitter mob um, corollary from today. I was thinking too, just, going back to the kinds of, you know, trials of the century that they had when we were growing up, you know, the OJ Simpson trial or the Lorena Bobbitt fiasco or the, um, you know, what was it? Nancy Kerrigan getting hit with a pipe, you know, whatever it is, these, these both things like the central park five was also pretty. Yeah, sure. All the, but the ones I mentioned are much more frivolous, which is why I brought them up, you know, like they're tempests in a teapot. Nobody really gets hurt. Nothing really goes wrong. Well, I was, well, I was thinking, what was the whole, do you guys remember the Richard Jewell thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go into that. that. Well, because I was thinking about this where it's like, we can, we can very easily vilify someone with very little information. Oh yeah. In ways that are ultimately, you know, it's one thing to go after someone for wearing a stupid coat. That's mean and petty and superficial and obviously kicking someone for our own entertainment. But to destroy someone's life on a lack of evidence and then they get to live with that in the public record, that's a much more significant crime that ultimately very few people feel responsible for, even as right. we're like, well, I read it in the paper. Well, I heard it. Now it's just I heard it. I heard it or I read a headline. Yeah. yeah. You know. But the Central Park Five, are, I have to bring them up again because, again, this is a similar thing. They, they were the, the apparatus of, of the press and the city and, and the justice system just went at them like several dogs, you know, oh, yeah. and these boys, were, their, their lives were, were ripped apart. Um, they've gotten their payment now, I think most of them, but. Um, right, but how can, how can you even compensate? Not that they shouldn't get what compensation yeah. they can, but of course, yeah. what a toll. There's no compensation for like 10 years in jail and you know, Donald Trump taking out a full page ad saying you should be, you should be. Uh, executed. Uh, 
executed yeah. publicly. No, I, that was the part I was going to say is our current president had a role to play in that ridiculous affair. Um, the Richard Jewell one, if you don't remember it, they just came out with a movie that I haven't seen, but I, I've read some stuff on it that um, after the Olympic bombing in Atlanta, he was... Oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he was, he was, from what I can understand, and I'm going to be a little mean, I guess, but he was a not very bright, but very, like, lawful good kind of guy. You know, he was a... He was, he was a guy who couldn't really make it as a cop. He wasn't really smart enough, but he was like an honest and earnest person who had a certain like identity around law and order and wanting to, you know, serve this, this system, you know, whatever it is. And then he found the bomb and saved some people. And then the FBI first started investigating him and then the press heard about it and then went nuts. And then all of a sudden it was like Richard Jewell did it. And it took him years to, to uh, clear his name in, in a way, in a very classic way that like, I didn't even know he had cleared his name. Uh, I knew that he had, was being investigated back then. And then I, I, I don't pay close attention to that kind of story usually, but um, I'm so sad about that, that I didn't know that this poor kind of a lumpy guy in you know from georgia managed to clear his name finally and was i think compensated as well eventually he died recent uh some time ago i don't remember why but it's one of these ridiculous things where the press will go rabid just to tear you out tear, tear you a new one rip your life apart and then like when it turns out that none of it's true everybody's like crickets nobody's banging at your door like what do you feel about now that you've been exonerated that's the scene in the movie that doesn't happen in real life, or if it does, they don't put it on the, you know, six o'clock news or the, it's not, it's not on the 24 hour news cycle. And that's the other thing I was thinking about with the leveling in combination with the press as this attack dog is that we, we have had a news cycle um, that is insane and ends up, I think, creating much more news than it actually shows us you know um and a big part of that is tearing down anybody that you can because that seems to be a story that everybody likes everybody likes a good tear down story you know since, since the 24-hour news cycle came to dominate after 9-11 we always have some sort of scandal somebody new allegations this or that it's always the leading line and it, it seems almost um, beyond anything that Kierkegaard could have imagined, considering it was all happening in newsprint, you know, um, <laughs> in a very slow, long form kind of thing compared to what we do today. But it's cool that he sees it then, that he sees what's happening, and he may see how bad it's going to get for us in our present, in our present, present age. Yeah, I think it's uh, just just to reiterate something I said in the beginning. It's, it's really important that we uh, give some credit, uh, give primary credit to Thomasine Gillenberg um, because uh, she enumerates this argument pretty clearly, even in just these five pages of preface and, and conclusion that we have here. And so, you know, I, I don't know enough about Kierkegaard's work more broadly, um, but I, I can say that, you know, that these aren't necessarily uh, novel creations in a bubble for him. He's he's working in a in a discourse. Oh yeah, he abs he absolutely is. 
Well, I think we could also focus on, on, on how this is a really cool and instructive text in, in a sense on how, how we can try to consistently avoid uh, performative versions of ourself for whatever, in whatever areas. And I was curious actually from what, what uh, we were talking about, whether Kierkegaard ever mounted a critique of patriotism along similar lines. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I don't think, you know, not, not to my knowledge, you know, Haeckel got into that a lot more and Kierkegaard certainly read Haeckel. Um, you know, he called, Haeckel called Napoleon, like the world spirit in one man, you know, whatever the Geist um, and had these, ideas of nations and the story of a nation and their historical trajectory but i don't know that kierkegaard ever did he wasn't particularly political he was an inward man yeah well the only other thing that i that i can think of that i love about this piece is the um is the leveling concept which we've touched on a little bit but i i'm I see that again, sort of what I was saying before, as one of these very, very bourgeois, very middle class kind of um, value system um, things that, ironically or not, Lucas sort of relates somewhat to what we were talking about about the uh, the um of Dan Denmark and Sweden and Norway. That idea that you know you're not special and you know you you shouldn't think you're special you shouldn't think you're somebody you shouldn't think you're anything worth you know the ten laws of Yantelov and anybody listening to this should look it up because it's really interesting. But I've also thought of Harrison Bergeron as a story <laughs> that I thought Kierkegaard might appreciate. Yeah, I think you're right. He definitely would. Yeah, because because that's that's a, that's a that's a thing, you know, when you sort of embrace the middle class existence in 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 any any of our cultures that has that existence when you're when you're neck deep in it in PTA meetings and and whatever you know you know playground visits and play dates and all the things that like I'm kind of hip deep in and try and struggle to keep like keep it at hip level, then things that are exceptional are kind of a critique of you. You know, I think that's something he senses. I think anything that's, that's, that's extraordinary is a, is a threat to your own reality, unless you're maybe one of Kierkegaard's people who can live in this sort of, well, accepting place or that religious existence that he's talking about that seems different where it's not a threat anymore. It's just, part of the thing well i think you know. i mean i think that the sort of if you want to be cynical you can think of it as a rationalization that goes along with that is you're gonna get kicked around if you stand out at all but lucky you that's how your character will be formed oh yeah i don't even know if that is cynical this this sort of essential idea that the world is going to go after anyone exceptional or strange but good good for you Keep keep doing it. Yeah, as a prescription for as a prescription for like functioning in the world, it's 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 rough. Like I I I often have real core visceral gut reactions against propriety. I just I, I, 
there's there's all these elements of propriety that just You're drive me kind of crazy because I think they're they're bullshit. But if I if I function like that everywhere, you know, I I, I wouldn't have a job. I would like, you know, like I can't feed my babies by uh, by taking this prescription, right. this anti principle, anti uh, and it's not anti all. It's like not anti ethics, but anti right. principle. But in, but Kierkegaard is no Diogenes, right? He's not living in a barrel in the middle of Copenhagen, <laughs> masturbating in the street, right? He's living a very pious, pretty abstemious life where he does also engage in civic discourse. He takes walks. He meets with people at coffee shops, you know, wearing pants. <laughs> wearing you know, pants. He, yeah, okay. He's not there. It's, he's, it's not, he's not plucking chickens you know, and carrying them into the competing uh, school. <laughs> on, the, on the spectrum, though, between Diogenes and like, who's on the who's the opposite of Diogenes? Who's the opposite? Uh, on my on my philosopher's punk scale, uh, I I can't remember who's. I think Hegel's at the very bottom, and it says basically a cop. No, 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 no. Well, I think you it's can more say, like Kant or Hume. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, they used to say of Kant, you can set your clocks by Kant's walks. Well, between, anyway, my point is that whoever's on the end of that spectrum, the other end from Diogenes, Kierkegaard is definitely closer to Diogenes. He's on the Diogenes side of things, you know. Right, but I don't think, but I don't, I mean, Diogenes saw himself as a social critic in a performative sense as well. Yes. Part of him getting the message yes. out was through whatever live theater situation his life became. Right. Kierkegaard is talking about literally talk, right? And he says, nowadays one can talk with anyone and it must be admitted that people's opinions are exceedingly sensible. Yet the conversation leaves one with the impression of having talked to an anonymity. The same person will say the most contradictory things with the utmost calm, make a remark which coming from him is a bitter satire on his own life. The remark may be sensible enough and of the kind that sounds well at a meeting and may serve in a discussion preliminary to coming to a decision, but in the same way that paper is made out of rags. But all these opinions put together do not make one human, right? So I think he's much less interested in being weird than in actually, you know, it, it's not the, the external, it's this internal ability to discern. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I found the thing, and it wasn't Hegel; it was Heidegger. It's the the you know the the German H thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes <laughs> more see, sense. He's down there with Kant and Burke. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so Kierkegaard and is in the Kierkegaard's in the punk-ish because you know he has punk ethic in some ways. But you're right; he does live this very kind of somewhat austere. Yeah, life. I'm surprised they put Marx up there actually uh, on the punk scale because I I find Marx to be his and this is where I was sort of going before about the the um, leveling thing um, is that Marx I think is the the ultimate leveler. Marx's entire point, if you think of what final Marxist communism looks like, is to level everything out. Isn't that more Mao? I, I feel like that's much more Mao. Well, Mao Mao put the horrid Chinese spin on it, but it was, but the spin it was, was was leveling. The spin was the worker is the level that we all should attain, and it is it is right down the middle, and no one should stick out. No, no, no. no that Marx, was Marx too. Marx. Well, Marx is Marx left room for you to have an inner life. That was fine, but it's supposed to be a classless hierarchy-less, if that's a word, that's not really a word. But he does um, also have that very famous line, right? That very famous line, like each to what he does best or something. What, what is that line? 
each according to his uh yeah each according to his need um i'm gonna i we're gonna I have to look that one up i know i know what you mean which um, means that marx had the had a, had a sense that each person would naturally do what they are you know do the thing for them and it would yeah, work but, but the Mao definitely doesn't have anything like that okay but 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 don't take it too far out of context of Marx, because remember Marx is saying that as long as it fits with the revolutionary and the socialistic activities, like if you're, you're, if you, if you go against the ethic of the, of the post-revolutionary Marx vision, then no, you don't like, if you, you have to agree with Marx's assessment of what your, what your abilities are in order to fit. You know, and that means fine. You can be an artist, and you can be a poet. You can be a painter. That's fine. You're allowed to be a some you know dilettante, kind of the way Marx was kind of a dilettante. But that's that's fine. You can do that um, as long as you put in your four hours at the factory like everybody else. Yeah, and and there's there's such an order of magnitude different from what 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 that vision is and what Mao. Right, really? Mao's is worse. It is. It is a, it's just a whole nother level because Mao really says there is art of the proletariat. There is you can't make individualized art. You can't. You know he like it. Go, it goes into a whole new dystopian level. Marx talks about that too. Okay, you know, um, he's not as virulent as, as as Mao is, and he never had power. So you know. Just if you'd given Marx half a chance, though, I'm sure he would have proved himself up to the cause. I mean, if you gave him a uh, give him a one bedroom apartment, maybe he would have been a tyrant instead of a studio. I, I don't I don't want to judge a, guy, a philosopher based on his private life, but he was kind of a son of a bitch. Oh, movies. sure, but he like he did like he had no money and wasn't living in a hovel like a tiny little apartment, right? Like he this wasn't like he had no he had no power. He was. He fits in our right. in our, our our theme of like curmudgeonly people at least. Yeah, yeah. But he was also a guy who had no vision of um he had amazing vision for like the industrialization in front of him and no vision for what might come thereafter. You know, his whole philosophy kind of breaks down in a post industrial existence. But Kierkegaard's doesn't, and that I find fascinating. And Kierkegaard's Well, and I think that's true about, about Hegel also. I think that's where Hegel and Marx fail is their teleological visions. And Kierkegaard just he's he's not even close to that territory. He's talking about the individual and I think it's really cool. Yeah. Well Hegel's vision I for I don't remember what his conclusions were, but um what I love about Hegel and what I think even Kierkegaard accepts and in this it's very clear is that adding that concept of recognition into your understanding of the nature of man is something that I've only recently discovered in Hegel because I was reading last year, Betsy and I both read The uh, End of History and the Last Man, which is deeply Hegelian. He talks about Hegel throughout that book, um, Fukuyama. And it's, uh, it's just, there's so much now that I see recognition as a fundamental human need like food or sex or sleep you know that i see like recognition everywhere and it's and it's i'm still sort of trying to incorporate it into a lot of what i've thought um in my life about human behavior um because it seems to be so important a concept and even so much so that kierkegaard i think sees it too well in kierkegaard talks about it but he also moves you away from it continually 
Right. You know, like he he grants it and then says like, no, no, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Go inward instead. But I think like in talking about the passionlessness of his age, which we, I guess we touched on in as much as we talked about sort of reason predominating. But I think that, you know, something that he also talks about when he talks about the passionlessness is this sort of, we adopt whatever the popular opinion is, we adopt these social roles, and because we're not having a direct individual relationship with those things, it's hard to have passion for those things or to bring passion to those things. And he has this little part where he says, in Germany, they even have phrase books for the use of lovers, and it'll end with lovers sitting together talking anonymously. In fact, there are handbooks for everything, and very soon education all the world over will consist in learning a greater or lesser number of comments by heart, and people will excel according to their capacity for singling out the various facts, like a printer singling out the letters, but completely ignorant of the meaning of anything. And I think of this often when I say to myself, you know, something like, how long do I cook chicken for again? And then I go and and ask some authority that I don't know what it is, how long I cook chicken for again. And so I'm not having a relationship with my chicken and any success or failure that I have has nothing to do with me or my cooking skills or my relationship to chicken. And then this pertains to everything. And there, I think there are times when I'm like, you know, I haven't asked another person a question in a day and a half, but I've had questions about child rearing and tax preparation or whatever, or any of these things. And then you realize that you haven't actually engaged in any kind of risk whatsoever, you know, and not even the risk that he talks about, right? These like life and death heroic risks, but like, you know, you, you know, failure finds us inevitably. So I'm not trying to say that I've gone a day without failing at a thing. But, you know, when you when you do your best to eliminate any level of risk at any of these things, you realize that your engagement with your life can at times have very low to no stakes and be consequently pretty passionless. Well, I mean, here we are in the middle of a lockdown pandemic. I mean, <laughs> with a passionate out outburst of, of many right. people yes, in society. Absolutely. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll pendulum back to the to the uh, revolutionary age. I mean, wouldn't that be something? Well, it's, it's, I'm, you made me think now about like the music that we grew up with, um, the difference between the music that was very popular in the 80s and then the music that was very popular in the For 90s very short while. in several American genres. Um, you have this outburst in the early 90s of, of this very... Uh, um, by contrast to the 80s music, deep and, and passionate music, uh, lyrically and, and, and otherwise, uh, a rebellion against the, the uh, thoughtless, formulaic 80s music. Um, and this happens both in, in rock and hip hop that I'm thinking of. Um, it did, but it was never as popular as, as you remember. And that's something I've realized recently because I've been researching the early 90s. And that's something that makes me really sad to, to learn in retrospect. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, big hit. It never got above number seven on the big charts. Nevermind was like 
a big selling album in the year that it came out, but it never got above like 20 something. Um, and when you look at the top selling musical acts, the big hits from those years that we sort of hold in our hearts um, for good reason as being sort of special, um, it was it was terrible. It was just a series of god awful Color Me Bad, Millie Vanilli. Um, and even the hip hop that was 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 charting with stuff like Baby Got Back and and stuff like that. Yeah, I think, but I guess I wonder if you look down the charts, you know, and say, okay, well, they hit number seven or or they hit the top twenty consistently. Um, I would guess that you just don't have similar uh, music in even the top twenty in the eighties or something. You know, like. Probably right. Well, I'm just going to raise the Kierkegaardian suggestion that if that truly became the mainstream, it would cease to be individual. So, yeah. so it's good that it didn't. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it would, it would inevitably, it would inevitably, I think like the irony of teen spirit would tip or maybe did tip into the sort of plastic playboy irony of say a blink 182. Well, and there was also, I remember when, when we were in high school um, in the early nineties, the, there was a, there was a sort of performative Nirvana fan fandom. Yeah. And, and I remember reacting kind of negatively to it. Like I felt like it was just, it was all artifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was a, well, yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, yeah. There was a lot of people like crying about Kurt Cobain after he died, who I didn't think had ever actually listened to Nirvana. Or, you know what I mean? And I think there's also like certainly that. a performative gangster. There was. Well, something you're forgetting about hip hop. I was listening to a lot of it at the time is that it wasn't quite gangster yet. Like there was, there was stuff in there from Public Enemy um, that was definitely talking about um, what you're talking about. But NWA comes out and sort of changes the ball game in a lot of ways. But, but right, right at that same time, you have a number of different hip hop acts that are not, distinctly not um, ghetto issue bands like arrested development or yeah but these these were these were consciousness rap i mean that that was also happening this was this is what i mean this is like yeah. these were like yeah. political you had like spiritual and arrested development and you had like beatnik rap and diggable planets and you had um a couple of other and wu-tang clan was in there too um yep and well and all of this all this represents a, a deeper form of rap than we have than 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 much of the the hip-hop that came before in many ways they're deeper and just in different ways yeah but what i think is a very leveling kirkegaardian sad thing that happened to rap at that point was when nwa broke out gangster rap became huge and it became a very hot sell um and it got um for about 10 years with i think lauren hill in there being something of an exception um, hip hop had a kind of stagnant period um, that ended with the sort of decline of 50 cent because he'd kind of like hit peak gangsta when you, you know, when he'd been shot nine times, so called or supposedly. Um, so like it got corporatized is what I'm trying to say. It's like the, the hip hop stuff got sort of bought, sold, repackaged. 
because ultimately it was those middle class white kids who were buying the gangster rap um, in such huge quantities because it, it was it was classic reason why middle class white kids have liked black music for a hundred years is it scared them. Well, it's the, it was the biggest buying population in in America. So yeah. you know, if it's going to get corporatized, that's going to be the market's going to sell to everyone, and that's the biggest chunk. And it scares their parents, and freaking yeah. out your parents is a big deal when you're a white middle class kid which is why I think the three of us had such a hard time when we were in high school because we couldn't freak out our parents because they'd already done all the crazy. <laughs> and it was like, how are we going to, but, but man, like, you know, like their response to grunge music was to play me big brother in the holding company when I'm 14. And I'd be like, great. Fine. <laughs> you win, you know, like, uh, you know, Oh, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, sure. You know, all right. Rebels. Anyway, we've we've drifted pretty far away from Kirkman at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we have a good amount of time. Betsy, what do you want to add? Nothing. I was just going to add. I know nothing about what you're talking about in any authoritative way, and so I'm not going to engage in what for me would be talkativeness and oh, chatter, chatter, chit chat. Chatter. My ability to have an opinion on any subject just because I want to be a part of the discourse. So I'm going to just be quiet. It seems like every time any of in any of these recordings that someone says, oh, I think we should probably call it a night. I always think of one more thing. So I just did. It's the how everyone gets to have an opinion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> My God. Like the, 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 everyone's entitled to their own opinion thing. I don't know how many times in my life I have had to fight through some ridiculous argument with some twit who felt entitled to their crappy ass opinion. Well, I think what's wonderful about Kierkegaard here is that is that if the bar was set by him, for those who can express an opinion, there would be very few who could express an opinion. I, and I, I have the chatter quote, which uh, which I think is one of his best lines. I, I used to think of Kierkegaard before I read this as somewhat humorless, but there's some really funny stuff in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he says, suppose a law were passed and could be maintained that did not forbid people to speak, but merely ordered that everything spoken about had to be spoken about as if it had happened 50 years ago, <laughs> then all the chatterers would be sunk. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah. uh, my line I found it on the opinion one was formerly the sovereign and the great each had their opinion and the rest were satisfied and decided enough to realize that they dared not or could not have an opinion. Now everyone can have an opinion, but they have to band together numerically in order to have one. 25 signatures make the most frightful stupidity into an opinion, and the considered opinion of a first-class mind is only a paradox. <laughs> I just love that. That's, that's a good one. Um, it, it, just to have a little a parade of kind of great or prophetic quotes, this is a prophetic one from page 102. He says, thus everything is permissible on principle, and just as the police in line of duty, in quotations, enter many places where others are not admitted, so also we can do everything on principle and shirk all personal responsibility. That concludes the episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope it was enjoyable. This podcast is produced by me with intro and outro music also by me, and thanks to Buzzsprout for hosting. Thanks for listening, everybody.